Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. I'm pleased to be joined by Ashley Nunez on the podcast today. He's a research fellow with the Harvard Law School and director for federal policy, climate, and energy at the Breakthrough Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank. You may remember Ashley from his first appearance on the Shift podcast about two and a half years ago when he provided a reality check on the rosy outlook for autonomous vehicles at the time. And much of what he projected in that conversation has come to fruition. More recently, Ashley wrote a commentary in the Chicago Tribune that ran earlier this month, and it caught my attention. It's why I wanted to invite him back today. This time he's writing about electric vehicles and how the price drops recently don't really help low-income drivers, and he detailed why that's such a big problem. He's going to expand upon that today and discuss the importance of helping lower-income Americans purchase EVs, not just from an equity perspective, but in terms of more rapidly reaching emissions reduction goals. And that is the tip of the iceberg. Ashley and I talked about EV affordability, charging challenges, the effectiveness of the Inflation Reduction Act, and more than anything, the complexity involved in this broad goal of reducing emissions, and combating climate change. Without further ado, I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with Ashley Nunes. Ashley, welcome back to the Shift Podcast. It's great to be with you again today. Thank you so much for having me. The last time you were here, we talked about autonomous vehicles and robo-taxis a good bit. Uh, Today, we're shifting the conversation toward electric vehicles. Uh, Ashley, I read just within the past week or two, uh, EV adoption of new vehicle sales is north of 5% of the total market. Let's kick this off with, with talking about that. Does, does that seem to suggest to you that this EV transition is moving into the fast lane? Well, I think it depends on what you view as being the optimal outcome. If what you care about is solely the number of electric cars that are being sold, then there has undoubtedly been an increase in the overall volume of EV sales. If, however, what you care about is emissions reductions, I think we have to be a little bit more cautious over there because a large number of electric cars are sold to houses that also own internal combustion engines. Right? And that's a problem because the whole idea behind EV sales is that one EV replaces an internal combustion engine, doesn't add to the number of vehicles in a household's inventory. Are you suggesting that it's more complicated than a, a one-to-one replacement, essentially? I think that all the available evidence suggests that the evolution, um, the deployment of electric vehicles isn't quite panning out the way that EV proponents have long talked about. And in fairness, um, this isn't something specific to the US market. You know, we have seen the exact same pattern play out in arguably the most mature electric vehicle market, Norway, which has a very, very long history of promoting electric cars. I think the first incentives that we see in Norway date all the way back to 1992. And in Norway, we see the exact same pattern. The majority of electric cars are being purchased by households that also own internal combustion engines. Let me ask you about that a little bit, because I feel like one of the barriers to 
and we can talk about several of the barriers uh, in the course of the next half hour, but one of them in terms of EVs replacing the kind of daily driver or road tripper in a family fleet has been affordability. That's been a big challenge. Uh, the average electric vehicle price is north of $60,000. In recent weeks, though, maybe we see that moving in a lower direction because we've seen significant price cuts from, from Ford with Mach-E and, and Tesla across its lineup. So uh, as EVs get more affordable, do we see something more equivalent to that one-to-one -one replacement? Well, um, you, you mentioned the Mach-E. I, I think we have to be a bit careful over there. I think you know, many people would argue that the reason for those price cuts were to ensure the, the, the vehicles themselves were eligible for the, uh, the, the clean motor vehicle credit. I think that's what we're calling it now. So I think we want to be a little bit careful over there. I, I think that price certainly does matter. It is arguably the most uh, important trait that a household considers uh, when they're deciding whether or not to purchase an electric vehicle or an internal combustion engine. And I think, you know, people tend to talk a lot about how prices will go down over time. You know, that's long been the mantra that we hear from EV advocates, that prices will go down over time. And there's no evidence to suggest that's the case. In fact, if you look at the average electric vehicle price in 2012, the average electric vehicle price was somewhere north of about $40,000. Today, the average electric vehicle price is north of, as you correctly point out, it's actually closer to about 65 dollars to $66,000. If the whole point of subsidizing the industry right, is to realize economies of scale, which eventually pushes down prices, why are prices going up? Well, I think it would be fair to point out as part of this, the costs of internal combustion cars have also gone up in this same 2012 to 2022 timeframe. We, the average ICE car is, is over 50 right now. And these two things are, are kind of moving in the same direction. So do we see something closer to cost parity now with the with the tax incentives that you mentioned. So you raised the excellent point that it's a very fair critique, right? Just because electric vehicle prices are going up um, isn't necessarily a bad thing if ICE prices are also going up. So what we really care about is the rate at which EV prices are going up relative to ICE. And when you look at those numbers and you track them over time, EV prices are going up at a faster rate than ICE prices are. If we look at the average electric vehicle, and we can look at the average uh, internal combustion engine. And to this point, actually, it's interesting that I, I think one of the things we've specifically heard over the years that you're alluding to is that uh, you know batteries are a significant portion of the cost in an electric vehicle, as as I think you know and we all know. There's been an assumption that battery costs would fall as that volume was achieved, but but is is what you see pushing up the costs of EVs now at a faster rate. In fact, that the fact that the mineral prices are are obviously not going down. It's certainly true that battery prices have long been seen as being really the principal impediment to realizing cost parity with internal combustion engines. And over time, we have seen remarkable reductions in battery prices. So I think if you if you look at battery prices in 2011, 2012, and you compare them in real dollars today, the, 
the general drop is somewhere in the order of about 86%, right? the remarkable drops in battery prices. However, there are uh, there's some things to understand. The first is the fact that just because you see large drops in battery prices previously does not mean that you will observe similar drops in the future because there's only so much that you know savings that can actually be realized by leveraging economies of scale. Right? And this is something that some of my colleagues at MIT, you know, Bill Green, uh, had, they released a paper on this. It was called you know, Learning Only Buys You So Much, in which they show that really um, there are material limits on how low you can get the price of batteries to be. Now, depending on whose numbers you believe, because there are lots of numbers out there, of course, you know, I think that the general number is, you know, we need $100 per kilowatt hour effectively to see price parity with the internal combustion engine. And their analysis, in my view, very elegantly demonstrates that it's, you know, uh, all else being equal, mathematically impossible, because that requires the price of the battery to dip below the material price of things like lithium, cobalt, manganese, nickel, et cetera. Going back to what you mentioned about the, the price cuts and how they really kind of get under that $55,000 mark to qualify for the Inflation Reduction Act uh, credits of, I think, up to $7,500. This is all still directionally positive, though, because that seems that both are working, you know, regardless of why those price cuts are coming, uh, they're making EVs affordable for the masses, no? Well, uh, you know, I, I think we have to be very careful over here to talk a little bit uh, and understand what the auto market looks like uh, and understand more importantly, what is the point of procuring, of purchasing an electric vehicle. The government tells us that, you know, the whole point of doing so is to lower emissions because on average, the emissions profile of an electric car is lower than an internal combustion engine. Well, if that's the case, there are really two groups you need to target if what you care about is emissions reductions. The first are individuals who put lots and lots of miles on the road, right? People like Uber drivers, truck drivers, et cetera. The other group are low-income Americans right, who very often tend to drive the most polluting vehicles uh, because those vehicles tend to be older. Now, when people talk about the $7,500 credit, let's, you know, let's just do a, ver a, li a little bit of basic math, right? So the average uh, electric vehicle price is $65,000. I apply a $7,500 credit, I get, that, I get that value down a little bit to about $57,500 or so, a little bit more. Well. That's still quite a bit of money. And it, it is especially a lot of money to low-income households for whom the average transaction price for a vehicle is closer to $12,000. And I think this is what people very often tend to forget is that you know you can give, uh, I think in my Chicago Tribune piece, the way I worded it was, you, know, you can give the rich household you know, $10,000 off a $65,000 car. They're gonna buy it anyway. They have enough money to do so. You can give a poor household $10,000 of a $60,000 car and it's not gonna make a lick of difference because they were never ever going to buy that car to begin with. Glad that you referenced your Chicago Tribune piece because there was, there was a, another line uh, that stood out to me uh, that was, 
instead of meaningfully helping low-income Americans go electric, the IRA pays lip service to notions of equality, equity, and justice. Um, that seems that seems pretty sharp. Can you elaborate on on what? where the IRA falls short in kind of addressing the those lower income buyers beyond just that affordability aspect or what what's the so, better solution well you know i i think there are a number of policies that are required to fundamentally transform how we do business in the united states from an emissions reduction perspective um, you know certainly uh, when we look at the IRA on face value at least, it appears as though it's making electric cars more affordable. I'm not opposed to that idea. Um, however, I have some concerns. One of those concerns is that the upfront price of an electric car still far exceeds the upfront price of an internal combustion engine. And all these individuals who start talking about total cost of ownership, et cetera, fundamentally, in my view at least, don't necessarily understand how consumers make decisions. When we walk into a car showroom, we don't say, oh, well, this car will save me $5,000 in the future, so I'm willing to pay an extra $5,000 today. That's simply not how consumers make decisions. And it is certainly not how middle and low income consumers make decisions. What these individuals care about is maximum savings today, because that's the reality they have to live with. Let's assume for a second, you can get these cars up front to be cost competitive with internal combustion engines. I don't think you can, but let's assume you can. You then run into another problem, which is recharging. Now, recharging, interestingly enough, has two components. If we look at IRA, one of those comp components is do, where do you recharge your car, right? And of course, I think there's about 7.5 billion in IRA to build out these network of chargers. Uh, you know, putting aside what I think of those chargers, you know, and uh, whether or not those chargers are reliable. And I think there have been a few interesting pieces out there about you know, people pulling up to the charging stations and the, you know, the chargers don't work. The, you know, I think people often tend to misunderstand what the utility is of fossil fuels. And what I mean by that is that when you pull into a gas station, you know you can get a full tank in five to seven minutes tops. Uh, that is simply not achievable, at least using current technology with an, with an electric car, because recharging your battery takes a lot longer. That particular constraint does not matter to rich households because they do most of their recharging at home. Right? So if we look at statistics in general, it's somewhere between 75 to 80% of recharging occurs at home. And there's a reason for that. It's because rich people have driveways in which they can park their cars and charge them overnight. Poor people don't. They live in highly dense housing where there simply isn't enough charging infrastructure in place. Right? It's, it's mathematically impossible unless you just have a lot of money. And I haven't heard you know, this administration or any other administration talking about retrofitting all the buildings that people live in. So what ends up happening over here is that the only option for many poor households is to charge on the street. So let's do a bit of math here. Well, okay, there is a finite amount of space. You clearly aren't going to have a, a charging station for in every single one of those parking spots. So I'm told that we have a, on the interstate, we're gonna have this whole network of chargers out there. I don't understand what the equity is. So where is the equity um, 
when a rich person can sit on their couch and charge their car right, uh, in the garage while the poor person is outstanding in the rain. That doesn't seem particularly equitable to me. I guess two-part question for you. One would be, it seems the federal government is addressing that in some way by uh, building this network of 500,000 chargers that they've embarked on with the, the billions that you referenced. Um, so does that, does that represent a step toward that equity? And, and perhaps to kind of go along the lines of what I think the answer is there, uh, is there a, too much of a focus in building these chargers on interstates versus in neighborhoods where, where people who don't have access to charging infrastructure in their garages might access that? Well, let me begin by saying that I'm glad to see that the current administration has a plan to address climate change, which I think uh, is a step forward compared to the previous administration. Uh, you know, regardless of how effective I believe the policy is, it's good to see that there is some movement there. So I think that's it's very important to, to say to say so. I think the government is in a very tough spot, right? Because on the one hand, you have the situation where many Americans rely on their cars to travel, generally speaking, short distances but they want the, the luxury of being able to take the occasional road trip and travel very far, which is why there is this focus on you know, placing chargers on interstates, et cetera. I do think that more can be done um, to incentivize the uptake of some of this technology by placing these charging stations in low-income communities. And to the government's credit, there are a couple of initiatives examining this. The DOE, for example, currently does uh, have numerous initiatives trying to understand what an equitable spread of chargers actually looks like. Ashley, you mentioned that you uh, kind of questioned the effectiveness of, of the policies in play, but you're glad to see them. So let me ask you, philosophically, do you see the transition to EVs that the government is, is pushing as, as an effective pillar in efforts to reduce climate change? I think that the role of government where climate change is concerned should not be to incentivize us to buy electric cars. The goal should be to reduce emissions, right? more specifically to maximize emissions reductions per dollar spent, right? Because the government has a finite amount of capital. One of the ways in which this can be done, you know, is to ensure that when subsidies are provided to households to buy electric cars, assuming you, know, you believe in the technology, we don't provide those subsidies to households that already have multiple cars in inventory. Right? And this is, I think, one of the real problems that we have in the United States as far as emissions is concerned. If you go back to the early 1980s and you look at the number of vehicles in a household multiple vehicles in a household, two-car households, three-car households, etc. The number of vehicles in households has only gone up. We should not be paying people to go out and buy more cars. Uh, I completely am a believer in the idea that cars have you know, emissions externalities, but they have positive benefits, the most significant of which is, interestingly enough, for poor people, because what it does is it fosters improvements in economic mobility. That said, uh, you know, again, the goal should be to replace existing vehicles in inventory in the overall fleet. It should not be to increase the size of that fleet. This is something that you have examined closely in some of your recent research. 
It is, uh, you know, certainly we, we have observed that you know, the majority of these incentives are going to households that are adding cars. So, you know, there's some wonderful work out there by some colleagues, David Rapson, the University of California, Fiona Burlick at the University of Chicago, who have found similar results. These results are consistent from other markets like Norway, where we see the majority of electric cars, again, are being purchased as, uh, as what we would call complements, not as substitutes. And, and that should worry the government. It, it really should, because it, it's unclear at that point where the emissions reduction potential actually is. It's even more worrisome because the whole idea behind an electric car is that you effectively reduce emissions when that car is on the road. And we know from years and years of studying patterns of how electric cars are being used, that electric cars in multi-vehicle households are responsible for a fraction of the miles relative to the internal combustion engine. Which means that the, the emissions reduction potential of these cars is not being maximized. That's not the fault of government. I want to be very clear about this. Right? Government has an intent. Their hope is to you know, reduce emissions by incentivizing this technology. But sometimes consumers behave in ways that aren't necessarily you know, either rational or you know, consistent with what the government expected. And that requires sometimes some tweaking in the policies themselves. In terms of that emissions reduction potential, we've talked about how uh, low-income Americans are driving older cars that are more, more likely to be polluted and, and perhaps shifting policy to get those cars off the road. I want to ask you about another aspect of that. Uh, is there incentives uh, for replacing kind of old diesel trucks? And, and how do we look at, rather than this through the lens of consumers, uh, through the lens of, of trucking operations, which a, seem to be more highly polluted than light duty vehicles, and B, perhaps more, more interested in that total cost of ownership equation that you also referenced earlier. Yeah, you know, um, Christopher Knittel um, at the Sloan School of Management at MIT has done some work on this. Uh, you know, I think he's done, he has very elegantly demonstrated that, you know, when we look at the trucking industry, there's actually sort of what he calls super polluters, where there's a small section of trucks that are actually responsible for a large chunk of the emission and the rest of the, the trucks less so. But in fairness, the same could be said of personally owned automobiles today, right? So if we look at automobiles today, we have a small, you know, the average household covers about 10,000 miles in a household, but then you have taxis that cover on average 90,000 miles. So from a pollution uh, maximization perspective, there are what, what we would call a few culprits. And if the government's role is to maximize emissions reductions per dollar spent, it makes sense to target those particular groups first and foremost, because that's really where the savings is. There's a number of automakers who would tend to agree with you that the government policy should not be to promotes electric vehicles per se, but to examine the, you know, reduce, reduce carbon emissions by whatever means and whatever technology uh, is best available. So do you see hybrids, for one example, having a role to play here? Do you see hydrogen fuel cells having a role to play in, uh, in the transportation realm in terms of being tech, technologies that help to reduce uh, 
that that are not only reduce carbon emissions but are are economically advantageous. So I'll I'll talk a little bit about hybrids. You know, I think about a year or two years ago, my colleague John Haywood uh, at MIT we had put out. Um, a paper in which we had looked at hybrids uh, and the, the economic efficiency of hybrids in terms of uh, emissions reduction per dollar spent uh, sort of vantage point. I've long been a proponent of using hybrids. I think hybrids offer the most bang for your buck, if you will. Right? So when we had done some of our original analysis, we had estimated that a hybrid you know, generally emits on a per mile basis somewhere in the order of about, you know, it's about 270, 270 grams of CO2 per mile. The electric car was closer to about 200. And I mean, you will say, well, that's a pretty big difference on a per mile basis, right? In general, if you assume the vehicle goes about 180,000 miles, well, you know, I mean, we're talking about a sizable chunk of CO2 emissions. However, it's also important to understand that very often when we look at emissions footprints for electric cars, many of these estimates don't consider the emissions impact of replacing the battery. And when you replace the battery, as you know, it's a very carbon intensive process, the emissions footprint goes up, right? Now, you know, our estimate is that it's somewhere between about 26 to 30 grams of CO2 per mile. So now let's assume you're at 230 grams of CO2, the, the, uh, you know, the, the hybrid is at 270. What happens when you reduce the number of miles that the electric car drives? Because we know from all the available evidence that electric cars don't cover the same mileage. Well, guess what? that emissions footprint goes up even more now because the emissions associated with manufacturing the vehicle are now divided amongst fewer miles, which pushes that number up. And as you account for many of these behavioral patterns, what you see is that you get closer, you inch closer and closer to what the emissions footprint of a hybrid is. And by the way, I mean, let's be very upfront about this. You know, People prefer hybrids to electric cars. I mean, the sales of hybrids, everyone talks about how, you know, electric car sales are up, but hybrid sales are really up. Are hybrids more, are, are hybrids more affordable and because of the, because of the need to not worry about having to charge every X amount of miles and, you know, you can take that, that road trip in a, in a hybrid without having to worry about stopping for an hour to recharge. Is that are hybrids fundamentally more more likely to wind up in the fleet and thus take a bigger chunk of miles uh, from internal combustion engines? I think a case can be made for the government certainly to incentivize the uptake of hybrids. Uh, and you know, again, there are states that offer or that have historically offered. You know, subsidies for procuring hybrids. You know, most of them don't do so anymore because people have gone all in on EVs, if you will, or at least policymakers certainly have. But you know, if you look at the upfront cost of hybrids, it's some, it tends to be somewhere between about fifteen hundred dollars to three thousand dollars more than an internal combustion engine. And of course, that pales in comparison to the you know, fifteen or twenty thousand dollars more you're going to pay for the electric car. When people look at the upfront cost of the hybrid versus the EV, and then they realize that the, the hybrid, which is cheaper, also offers us something else, right? It offers them something else. The notion that you don't have to worry about ever running out of a charge, 
You don't have to worry about you know searching around to find a, a charging station that's broken or a charging port that's broken. I think the value proposition is very, very strong. We're going to take a short break from my conversation with Ashley for this word from our friends at Slate. When we return, we're going to discuss some of Ashley's ongoing research, plus examine whether frequent flyer programs exacerbate emissions. Hi, I'm Lizzie O'Leary, host of Slate's What Next TBD, a clear-eyed look at technology, power, and the future. From fake news to fake meat, algorithms to augmented reality, we'll guide you through the rapid technological changes that are reshaping our world. Those changes aren't always visible, and they aren't always what they appear to be. That's where TBD comes in. With the help of expert guests, we'll help you parse out what matters, what doesn't, and what's next. Subscribe to What Next TBD in your favorite podcast app. Now back to my conversation with Harvard researcher and Breakthrough Institute director, Ashley Nunes. You have an appointment at MIT. You are a director of climate and energy at the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, what all do you do and what, what falls in within the scope of all your research? Well, I'm, I am currently the co-director for our Washington DC office for climate and energy at the Breakthrough Institute. You know, we are interested in understanding the scope of climate change and proposing pragmatic solutions uh, to address climate change. Uh, you know, in addition to that, I do uh, a fair bit of research um, at Harvard Law School and the Department of Economics at Harvard. Uh, but broadly, our, you know, my work tries to understand or seeks to understand at least how innovation and, you know, affects markets and how climate technologies and climate policies are influenced by consumer actions and vice versa. You know, we, uh, I know you work across the transportation spectrum and we talked about your Chicago Tribune piece earlier. You had a, a, another recent story that mentioned a, a one-way flight between Lisbon and New York generates the same amount of CO2 uh, as an average person in the European Union generates heating their home for an entire year. Uh, so yes. you kind of posited that frequent flyer programs are encouraging flying and thus encouraging uh, excessive greenhouse gas emissions. I, I, I want to be very clear about this. I did not suggest that. Uh, that is the mantra that we hear a lot from environmental think tanks who argue, there are some, not all of them, but some think tanks argue that we should do away with frequent flyer programs because they incentivize people to fly. Um, there is, first of all, no evidence to suggest that's true. And more importantly, even if it incentivized people to fly from an emissions reduction perspective, it wouldn't make a lick of difference. Well, I'm sorry I misread that and uh, I'm glad you clarified. I'm curious, like big picture, like, we're talking about all these different ways to to reshape transportation in in ways that may or may not be more climate friendly. Is is the most impactful thing we can do not transition to electric vehicles, but reduce our use of transportation? I think there are two ways in this in which this can be addressed. So one possibility certainly is to curb consumption, right? But nobody ever ran in one political office by running on that particular platform, right? Hey, consume less, vote for me. Uh, or if you vote for me, I will make sure you consume less. Rather. Um, the alternative, so let's just take road transportation for a second. If, you know, I would posit that we do not need electric cars to lower emissions. 
we could lower emissions today if people did one thing. It's called ride pooling. And we see how popular that is. Right? If, if we took, you know, if we took, if we just took rush hour traffic for a second, and we think about the volume of pooling that there is during rush hour traffic, so single occupancy vehicles, double occupancy vehicles, etc., we would see significant reductions in emissions if people were willing to pool their rides. But this is incredibly difficult to do because for whatever reason, people like to ride alone. Right? I think the current estimate is, is that it's a little over 55% of rides are single occupancy rides. It's a little over 20% are dual occupancy rides. Um, so this puts the government in a very, very difficult position, which is that on the one hand, voters say we care about the planet. But on the other hand, we are unwilling to make any sacrifices. Let's just blame someone else for it. Right? We, for example, are, aren't responsible for the pollution. It's the oil companies that are responsible. But you know, my response to that is, well, you know, what do you think the oil companies have been doing? Have they been drilling for oil and parking it, all that oil in their backyard? Or have they been selling it to you and I? I think we need to make some unpopular uh, choices. And perhaps that's, uh, that's an interesting juxtaposition to, to explore further is that uh, there's hard choices ahead that people seem, consumers seem unwilling to uh, either identify or identify their role in making them. Yeah, I mean, I would say two things over there. Sometime back, I'd written a piece for the Financial Times. I think it was called Voters Care About the Climate or Voters Care About the Planet, but Not Enough to Pay. Um, about a year and a half ago, there was a, and I might be butchering it here, um, but I think there was a Reuters reporter or a reporter for the AP who said something quite interesting. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, the real rub in climate change for, for policy leaders is to implement policies that deliver long-term reductions in emissions, but in the short term would be very unpopular. And how do you actually do that? And I think this is really the challenge that the Biden administration, um, that the Trump administration, that the Bush administration, et cetera, has. Because invariably asking people to make sacrifices um, is, is difficult. Um, people would much rather someone else make those sacrifices, and you know, and, and that makes people feel a lot better about it. So, Ashley, uh, I know you have a lot of research underway. Can you give us a sneak preview of of what you're working on and what we're likely to hear about from you and your team in the uh, months ahead? Yeah, you know, we are doing quite a bit of work on vehicle electrification. You know, we are we are trying to understand how changes in the grid will affect the emissions uh, proposition of electric cars. We are trying to understand what the trajectory of prices for electric cars currently look like and what they could potentially look like and what the impact is on fleet turnover um, in, in the United States. And we're also looking at some other markets as well. We're also trying to understand you know, innate differences that exist between you know, countries like China and the United States when it comes to acquiring electric cars and what the impact is for overall emissions reductions. You mentioned fleet turnover and I was just reading the other day, the, the average car on the road in the United States is 12.2 years old. It's the oldest the average car has ever been. Uh, and I think perhaps that underscores in a way the, the long-term nature of whatever this the shift and transition that we're making uh, is, is this fundamentally a, 
a really long road. We're talking about being at 5% uh, of EVs being 5% of new car sales today. Uh, the Biden administration is hoping that's 50-50 by, by the end of the decade. Uh, but all these internal combustion cars are still going to be on the road for for 12 to, you know, if that's the average, in, in many cases, 20 plus years. Is this is this going to happen in time to to reach climate change aversion goals? So you, you've said two separate things, and I want to I want to treat them separately accordingly. Uh, it is it is true the Biden administration has said that they plan to their aim. I think they have, it's an aspiration, if I recall correctly, because no one's willing to actually commit to to you know to ensuring you have fifty percent of EV sales. the The goal there is to ensure that fifty percent of sales, of course, is electric. Um, and if, you know, if we go back to the point I made earlier, talking about complements versus substitutes, I'm not necessarily sure that's a good thing. If the whole goal is just to sell cars again versus replacing cars that are inventory, that doesn't necessarily get you the magnitude of emissions reduction that you require or that you aspire for. That's the first thing. But let's assume for a second that every electric car that's purchased replaces an internal combustion engine. Let's assume that's the case. In order for that to have a tangible impact on emissions reductions, you know, people have to go out and buy these cars. Now, let's say I'm a homeowner, you know, I have a family, et cetera. I just bought an internal combustion engine. I spent five years paying off that mortgage. And guess what? There's a really affordable EV that comes out. How likely do you think it is that a household that has just paid off a mortgage on or paid off uh, you know, their car payments on one car is going to say, hey, there's an affordable EV now. Let's just go out and take out another loan and trade our car in and get that one. That's simply not the way it works. It's not like you're replacing an iPhone, right? A car is the second largest purchase a household will make. So, you know, this is this sort of feeds into this notion that even if you had price parity between the internal combustion engine and the electric car, this really is going to take a long time. And simply arguing that all we need is to make sure that we throw enough money to get people to buy electric cars, right? I, I think that's a disservice to the complexity of the problem. And I think it misleads the public. Uh, you know, to the extent that they don't fully understand how complicated and how difficult the task actually is. That's not to say we can't achieve it, but, you know, it, it, I think it makes it seem, you know, far simpler than it truly is. Ashley, final question for you here. How did you get in interested in studying these areas in the first place? Well, I love transportation. And, you know, I think as you, as you alluded to in your introduction, we had, we had done quite a bit of work on on autonomous vehicles, which have, which are going through a bit of a cooling period. So I'm glad to see that some of our projections turned out to be right. Uh, but, you know, well, people have long talked about how autonomous vehicles would be cleaner because they're electric. And we had done some work, I think about a year and a half ago with my, some of my colleagues, Lorena Hugh at MIT and Richard Freeman at, at Harvard, in which we had looked at the emissions reductions potential of autonomous electric taxis. And we found, well, Surprise, surprise, um, actually it leads to a net increase in emissions, not a net decrease. So there was a natural evolution to trying to understand, you know, vehicle electrification, and then trying to understand the behavioral patterns that influence how people actually use these vehicles and what the resulting emissions impact is. 
you know, from a, the perspective of government. You know, remember the government is throwing billions of dollars, uh, you know, at, at vehicle electrification. I'm not necessarily convinced that IRA makes that much of a difference uh, because the size of the incentive is largely the same, it's $7,500. Um, although I think um, with, given some of the critical mineral requirements, it might be even harder to actually claim the benefit. So there's, I think there's a 35 or $45 per kilowatt hour subsidy effectively for companies that build the batteries in the United States. But, uh, but from the, the consumer's perspective, I'm not necessarily sure it makes that much of a difference in terms of the uptake of these, um, of these vehicles. Ashley, if you're going to recommend one book that we should all be reading that kind of really sheds light on on some of these on, on some of the complexity of this of this area, as you alluded to, is there one book that you would recommend for us? Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, you know, I'm an I'm an engineer by training. Uh, although much of my work is on economic policy analysis, I would recommend a book that has uh, nothing to do with climate at all. Uh, actually, I would recommend two books. Uh, the first is called No Free Lunch. It's by Milton Friedman. Um, and you know, uh, regardless of whether you believe in free markets or not, I, I think it it very elegantly lays out the case for why and how there are consequences for everything we do. Right? There is no free lunch. Uh, so I think that's the first thing I would say. The other book I might recommend is reading a book that I've recommended to some of my students called The Carbon Footprint of Everything. Uh, which is just, I think it's a, it's a fun read, and I think it really gives you an appreciation um, for, uh, I think, the, the emissions impact of a range of different goods, and it has certainly changed how I think about consumption. Great. Well, I'll get to my Amazon wish list here momentarily, uh, but first, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again today. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, I mentioned Ashley's first appearance on the Shift podcast at the outset of the show. Looking at our archives, that occurred on June 29th, 2020. Uh, it feels like yesterday, but I bring that up because much of what Ashley projected about the complexities involved in robo-taxi operations really rings true today. So in another three years, I think we should look back on his thoughts from today's episode on EVs and see how the 2026 landscape matches with some of the EV hurdles and problems that he discussed today. Uh, but that is it for today's episode. If you like this episode of Shift, please leave us a review or subscribe at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Ashley for being here. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week 